Hola. <laughs> that just came to me. Hi, this is Jen Grant, and you're Hi, listening. Hi, this is Graham K. Hi, you are listening. This is Adam Fox, and you're listening. This is to Dylan the... Mandelson, and you're listening to the. This is Brian Hat, and you are listening to the Julian. Hi, this is the Word Man of Alcatraz. <laughs> Señores, señores. Hey, everybody! This is Little Darren Frost. Okay, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Fabio Mantovan, and you're listening to Julian Dion. This is Dave Sidhu, and you're listening to the Julian Dion Comedy Podcast. Podcast hour. Showcase. You are listening to the Julian Dion Comedy Hour podcast. Hola. Yes, here we go. Episode 13, coming at you. Yeah, back at Lemon Press Studios. All right. Back back in the distillery district, downtown Toronto. Hey. How you doing? This is episode 13. Yeah, motherfucker. Episode 13, released on Halloween. Ain't that something? That's a little message for you. Uh, that proves that ghosts are... Uh, uh, I can't even get into it. My guest today, Ron Vaudry. The Ronald Vaudrington. Also known as the Ron Vaudry. Um, we, we had, this is, by the way, uh, the third installment of the West Coast Tapes. That's still a thing. I have a few interviews in the bank from my trip. So this continues that series. The West Coast Tapes. Here we go. Ron Vaudry, veteran of the game, 36 years in the business. We had a good chat. Mildly controversial episode, this one, because we get into some uh, some controversy that he went through, he faced, if you will, a few years back, and we sort of rehashed that. And then I get, uh, we call Darren Frost, who's also part of it. And we'll get into it. I don't need to explain the whole thing here. You'll... You listen in, it's a little, it's juicy, it's good. Huh? You having a good Halloween? You out there? You doing stuff? I am not. I went over this a few episodes back, I'm just uh, taking it easy. Back from the road, had a great trip on the west coast, Victoria, Vancouver. Last episode I talked about my bombing, and uh, had a great show at the Comedy Mix on Wednesday. Made up for it, redeemed myself, it was great. That club, one of the best clubs I've performed at so far. Probably one of the best in the country. The Comedy Mix, downtown Vancouver. Amazing. Jason, the GM there. They just, they seem to do everything right. All the ingredients that lacked on the last show that I talked about, they're all there at the Comedy Mix. It was a great, great night out. Thanks, Vancouver. And now I'm back home. Had a long travel day. 
yesterday and uh, yeah, glad to be back. I realized on the plane when I I, I met made friends with Linda, the woman next to me. She's an occupational therapist, lives in Victoria with her husband who's an artist and uh, and uh, I had this moment when we're when do you say goodbye when you make a friend on the plane when do you say goodbye do you do it because i said goodbye to linda about four times yesterday one time as we're standing up we're leaving so so we chatted a lot on the plane and this and that and then so you kind of make that connection and then when you leave there's so many opportunities to say goodbye and i and i never know which one because you don't know if you'll see them at the next step here's what i mean Chat with Linda, we land, I stand up, grab my overhead, my overhead, uh, why do I want to say container, luggage, and say goodbye, well, it was nice meeting you, and oh, take care, all the best with your comedy career, I'll be listening, thank you, I'll see you around, enjoy the wedding this weekend, and then we follow each other out of the plane, that's goodbye number one. Then walking, once you get off the plane, we're walking and we're next to each other. So we keep talking, I guess. Why not? And then we get uh, right before the luggage. All right. You you take care. Yeah, you do. Take care. It was really nice meeting you. All right. All the best. See you again. Okay, bye-bye. We leave. Wait for the luggage. She's on the other side of the carousel. She gets her luggage first, crossed, crosses my path on her way out. See ya, it was real nice meeting you. Yeah, you too. It was great. All right. Okay, yeah, you take care. Have a great wedding. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Who am I? And then I'm waiting for my ride where you, the passenger pickup. I'm just waiting there, looking at my phone, texting. And all of a sudden, who's next to me? Linda. Hey. You texting your ride? Yeah. She should be She should be here any minute. Yours? Yeah, I'm waiting for my nephew to pick me up. Oh, cool. Nephew pulls up. That's me. All right, Linda. Take care. Yeah, okay. It was really nice meeting you. Okay, you too. It was great. We'll see you again. Okay. Bye-bye. Four goodbyes. Was that four or five? That was too many. One is good. One I can do. Two is like a little social oversight. Whoops. <laughs> it's awkward. Four, a little excessive. And so when is the right time to say goodbye? It's like uh, I had a monologue, one of the first episodes, about not knowing what you go into the handshake, you do the one kiss on the cheek, the two ki- This is my same conundrum, but the exit, the outro. Needless to say, four, four is too many. So then got into a car and got home. I literally literally used every mode of transportation on this trip. Uh, train, boat, was in the ferry, plane, automobile. I was just missing a bike and a unicycle, maybe a zip line. But uh, almost every mode of transportation. And there's just too many people, people everywhere. That's the thing. 
What, no matter what you take, ferry, tons of people, train, tons, even walking down the street, just people everywhere. It's just hard to get from point A to point B. I just wish we could, can we not as a society try to develop and perfect teleportation? That'd be great. Huh? Instead of all these planes and just teleportation. That'd be amazing. And you get, you get like, there's a quota. You wouldn't, you wouldn't, uh, maybe there's like a, okay, let's develop, we develop teleportation. This is why I see it go down. Some, for some reason, there's some sort of like butterfly effect when you do it, right? Maybe, uh, I don't know, you teleport and one random domesticated cat dies in the world. So because of that, you're limited to five. I don't know why a cat has to die. Um, so you're limited to five... <laughs> teleports a year so then you'd be stingy you'd be you know you'd make it worth your while when you use your teleport and then every then you re-up at the end of the year you get five more but then what if you like thought of like a horrible place when you're mid teleportation right before you teleport you just think of like iraq and all of a sudden you're there you're like shit for some reason, you've already used up your four others. You're, that's your fifth one. Now you're in Iraq, and it's like February 11th. So you have to wait the whole eight months. I guess you could plane back. Anyway, this is what I think of on my free time. Teleportation. No goodbyes teleporting, by the way. That's the beauty of it. And if there are any, it's definitely just one goodbye. There's no four goodbyes. All right. This is getting weird. Are you still with me? Are you listening? I appreciate it. All right, West Coast, thank you so much. That was great. And uh, just a couple uh, little things before I get to my guest today. Uh, if you're in Toronto, Torontonians, come to Say What? Wednesday, November 5th. That's next week. Got a great show lined up for the Julian Dion Comedy Hour live show. It's going to be a good time. Garage Baby up on stage. And I think that's it. I don't... Let me check. That's everything. Traveling. I'm tired. I'm jet-lagged. And I'm one of those guys that... I really milk the jet-lagging. But it doesn't really make sense, you know? It'll be like 9.30 at night. I'm coming back from the West Coast. It's 9.30 at night. And I'm just like, oh. I am jet-lagged. I'm exhausted. It's only uh, 6.30. It's dinner time for me. Starving, I should say. I'm all over the map. Come to say what, and let's get now to my guest, uh, Ron Vaudry. had a great chat with him in my hotel in Victoria. And, uh, of course, we, uh, it gets a little controversial, but you'll, you'll, you'll discover that on your own. All right, so enjoy my chat now with Mr. Ron Vaudry. You and me belong just like the flowers laughing all day long people i need to lose sing a little song then take a shower julian dion comedy thank you very much good evening how are you Pleasant. Can we get this light just a little brighter, if it's at all possible, please? I could almost see my dead parents beckoning me in this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, 
hell at you like you're late for school. That's an angry life, that one. All right, some of you weren't laughing at that. Let me explain stuff for you here briefly. Uh, my friends, laughter is a good thing, okay? That's my only message. It's my only intent. It's a very powerful thing, laughter, a very physical thing, laughter. Every time you laugh, your brain emits chemicals, positive chemicals, dopamines, endorphins that stimulate your immune system and possibly can kill a cancer cell. Yeah. So my way of looking has got to be, if you'd rather have cancer than laugh at my silly jokes about my dead parents, what kind of miserable bastard are you? <laughs> I, I like living here amongst you people. I've been living here in uh, Britain for uh, a little over seven years now, which of course means I've experienced seven British summers, and Christ, they are special. <laughs> Should be very proud of these little Kodak moments you call summer over here. <laughs> you guys are a much hardier lot than you let on. I have so much respect for you people. Ten and a half months in a row of gray and drizzle every goddamn day I get up and want to stick a gun in my mouth. How about it? There's not a drop of vitamin D on this entire island, is there? How the Germans even find you freaks in the first place? That's what they They are some lucky guessing Nazis they are. Okay, and that was my guest that you just heard there, my guest on today's episode. Uh, what can I say about this guy? He's been around the block. He's a veteran of the game. 36 years, to be specific, in this goddamn game. He's been, uh, well, let's go through some of his credits. He's been on the open mic with Mike Bullard show six times back in the day, eight times on uh, comedy at Club 54, which is a big staple in Canadian comedy. He's done the Just for Laughs Comedy Festival in Montreal five times. He's been on the Arsenio Hall show. He's had a special on the Comedy Network called Comics. And uh, he's been to the Edinburgh Festival where he was uh, on the Best of the Fest showcase there that aired in the UK. He spent the last 10 years in London and uh, in the UK and touring literally all over the world. And he's here today. Mr. Ron Vaudry sits in front of me in my hotel room. I appreciate him being here. Thanks, Ron. How you doing? What, what, what did you do with your day today, Ron? I hurt myself today to see if I still feel. And I do. So that's why I'm up and I'm talking to you. <laughs> there we go. Ron Vaudry is here. That, he, he's hurt himself today, and he does still feel. How you doing, buddy? Uh, hurting and feeling. Hurting and feeling. Feeling well, and hurting. Why, why the hurting? Oh, uh, just not used to the. I'm still in. Uh, You're still in, in, in jet lag. Jet lag. <laughs> what time is it in the UK now? It's 1:35 here in the West Coast. Uh, it would be about eight hours uh, later. Okay, I can't do the math that fast. I so, can. It's uh, 25 to 10 p.m. 25 to 10 p.m. So you're about you're you're on stage right now, <laughs> in your mind. No, I'd be in the pub getting pissed after the show at this hour. <laughs> <laughs> Show's over. They do a fair share of drinking over there. Yeah. We're, we're trying to shed that drinking weight now. So. Uh, you were reflecting on that song when it was, we were playing it before. You are saying a lot of comics have died. It's true. So many comics seem to, to die. And, uh, and I mean, wow. having done this for 36 years, you must have experienced a hell of a lot of loss of friends. Uh, lately, yeah. You get over 50 and uh, people start dropping like flies in January. It's, like, it's very odd. It's like... Everybody dies eventually, but it's just, uh, you know, uh, comics have, have this resilience. I don't know why. They they usually survive a lot longer, so when they start dropping off, you know, yeah, 
people like uh, Bill Hicks, Sam Kennison, you know, George Carlin. Well, he he, he lived a full one, you know, mm-hmm. but still too soon, too early. And just you, Robin Williams, you just notice people dropping, you know. And that, it, it's, it's that age. It's often super sudden. Uh, it, death is always super sudden. It should be. <laughs> yeah, it should be. You that should way. be the most surprised of them all. <laughs> but I mean, we have friends in common that we've lost. Stuart Silver, as we just talked Stuart about, Silver, he's Sean a young Keen. young guy, and uh, yeah, he's a young guy. He's always been uh, enthusiastic about his comedy, and he was uh, really coming around, finding his own voice, and uh, married, happy, and dead. Yeah, young, uh, forty three, I think he was. Hey, good comedy interview. Let's go on. Let's <laughs> dig up a few. Give him a kick. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to change the name of the podcast for this uh, one episode only, the Julian Dion comment or the Julian Dion sorrow hour. Well, we still got uh, we still got Johnny playing in the background, so yeah. <laughs> um, so you're back. You were in the UK for ten years. Yep. And you're back in Canada. Yeah, I'm decompressing here in the coast, where I'm familiar with the weather and still all different. <laughs> and you're saying you might settle on the coast for a bit. Yeah, I've always liked, I've always loved the coast. You know, uh, yeah, it's it's a challenge because they're too politically correct, and uh, for a social satirist, you're always going to be walking through that minefield with your clown shoes on. So right, they're hypersensitive and ridiculously so sometimes. <laughs> You remember that? Remember that fabulous room uh, Brent Butt and Jamie Hutchinson had in Kitsilano, the Urban Well. The Urban Well, yeah. They sold that show out every Tuesday, two shows, two a, night. shows a night, 125 people a show, every night for like two years. Yeah. And I was in town. I was making a poster with Brent Butt, who's uh, quite a good animator as well. And uh, he said, "What do you want on the poster?" And I jokingly said, uh, "Politically correct, need not attend." And he laughed and said, yeah, I'll put that on. I went, no, no, don't do that. They'll take that seriously. No, nah, no, they want it. It's a joke. It's obviously a joke. Right. And he put it on the poster, and that week they had uh, 23 people in the first show and about 16 in the second. <laughs> <laughs> and then the next week it went right back to full again. Right. So. so they listened at least. Yeah, they know who they are. Smart and Well, if he doesn't want us to go, we're not going then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you're from Montreal originally. Uh, yeah, yeah, the other liberal bastion of Canada. Let's go back a little bit, because I don't have the chance to offer, to, to inter- offer, what am I doing, to interview veterans like yourself. Like, 36 years in the business is a fucking long time, so let's go yeah, back. When get, you started... Get me while the memory's still working. Yeah. Right. 36 <laughs> years ago, so what year was that when you started? Uh, that was precisely Seven. September 1st, 1979, Labor Day. Holy shit. And what was, where did you start, in Montreal? Uh, yeah, it was a little club run by Ernie Butler called Stitches, a little basement bar on Crescent Street. It literally had a, a, a pole, like a box support beam in the middle of the stage at the front. So right. you can do visuals to the left and then do them again to the right. Right, right. A little 70-seater, and I walked past it, went in, saw a show. And went, Ernie, Butler, Ernie Butler, who went on to open the Comedy Nest. Yeah. So, okay, how old were you in 79? 23. 23. You decided to do stand-up. Was it always sort well, of a passion for you? I decided to try it. Right. Yeah, the decision to do it came later. Yeah. Were you a fan of comedy, or was it... Uh, always. Yeah? Always, always, yeah. yeah. Pref- so, but prefer- what- preferred the Marx Brothers over the Stooges. Sorry, you. But in... Uh, <laughs> Brainstem <laughs> comics. Yeah. Uh, but I imagine in 79, I mean, comedy wasn't as mainstream as it is now, or like we didn't, there was no internet no. certainly. So how did you, did you just... Ba- barely existed. Did you listen to it, like have comedy records? And well, you know, uh, you know, I was always a big fan of the Marx Brothers, watched mm-hmm. all their movies. I liked uh, some comedy movies, you know, at, uh, Monty Python came along, Saturday Night Live. There was a lot of good examples of modern comedy going on out there. George Carlin always kept pace, listened to a lot of his albums and... Yeah, I just enjoyed comedy. I was a fan, so yeah. 
and you decided to do it for the first time. How did that go? Uh, spectacular. Yeah? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was kind of weird, though, because I, uh, I was supposed to do a duel with a friend because he wanted to do it too, but he was too shy. So we discussed all kinds of shit uh, to do, and uh, he pulled out at the last minute after I got the audition for the uh, manager MC of the club. Mm -hmm. And uh, he pulled out the day before, so that night I sat down and spent 15 minutes writing 10, and then went and auditioned for this MC Then did you get manager. the gig? Yeah, I was alone with him in his office, which was a little creepy. You but were alone? <laughs> that's how you audition? That's how you yeah. do your set? Yeah. Just, in, just standing in, in front office. of him. Yeah, just Fuck. standing in front of the manager. And you had never done it before? No. So you're like, holy shit, and you got the gig? Yeah, that was Friday afternoon. He said, uh, you want to do Sunday? I went, what's going on Sunday? Well, we're having a Jerry Lewis joke-a-thon for Labor Day, and uh, all the proceeds at midnight uh, will be driven down to WPTC Plattsburgh, New York, and donated to uh, Jerry's kids. And I said to myself, good karma. Good way to start, selfless. <laughs> and like a keener, I didn't know any better. I didn't know any better. I showed up at noon. Right. So, oh, great, you're here. We got to get the show started. I'm here. <laughs> I'm it. Ah. Right. And I did uh, 12 shows that day, six improvs and six stand-ups. Basically went on every hour on the hour. And Holy shit. Got all that first time on stage bullshit out of the way right away. 12 times your first day. Yeah, nobody else can claim that, I don't think. <laughs> right. And that's why I feel for the the new kids coming in there. It's like if they get their one night a month at, right. at the prevailing local club, it's like it's hard to accumulate that, accumulate that time, and it really is a matter of accumulation too. And this is pre-80s like 80s comedy boom, so like, what was, yeah. the, what was the scene in Montreal like? Was that the only club at the time? Well, it was the only club in Montreal. It was the only place doing comedy in Montreal because of the split language issue. Mm -hmm. and, uh, it could only really work downtown in the English Quarter. And uh, other than that, there was no real comedy going on that I know of in, in Montreal. And Toronto had Yuck Yucks, and Vancouver had, uh, was it Laugh Lines or Punch Lines? I can't remember back then. Back in 82, we, we visited it on our first Yuck Yucks tour. So you said off the top it was your decision to try it, your decision to do it like as a profession came on later on. How do you make that transition from doing it one time? Did you get so jazzed up after your 12 first tests in one day that you decided this could be a I want to do more thing? of it, yeah. Yeah? I want to do more of it. So the idea was to do more of it and uh, keep it as a hobby. And you kept, that was your home club? Uh, that was my home club. That's where I started, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, later on that month, uh, I was working for the Montreal Star at the time, driving one of their trucks, and uh, they went out of business. They closed the doors to set an example to all the other unions in their newspaper empire. Mm -hmm. Montreal's a limited market, so I found myself out of a job and uh, with a pocket full of severance pay. So let's keep doing comedy and look for something else, but the comedy kept going. And how long did you... So you stayed in Montreal for how many years? Uh... Well, off and on, so I sort of split myself between Montreal and Toronto, and then I moved to Toronto, and then, uh, you know, so were you, full time. You said you'd split your time between Montreal and Toronto. How do you make that, that transition back then to, how do you get gigs in Toronto? Well, you drive to Toronto, yeah. <laughs> you show up their door, and you, you just unpack all your shit, and uh, you go to Yakko's, I'm available this week, and... And Yuck Yucks at the time, paint a picture of that. Like, how was, I mean, now there's like 400 comics on the roster. Back then there was, uh, it was just starting. What did it, that start, like well, 77 back, or something? Well, it's got, it's got a history. It started on church, in a church street basement uh, in 77 by, uh, by uh, someone else other than uh, Mark Breslin. And he was brought in to uh, coordinate the talent. And I guess the light bulb went over his head going, the talent is the business. 
And it doesn't matter what room you put it in, it all comes down to the talent. So mm-hmm. he opened up Yak Yak. Well, actually, he didn't even come up with the name. It was uh, somebody else's that he handed it off to him. Ooh, <laughs> that's scary news. But, uh, yeah, and, uh, you know, they opened up the club on Bay Street. And they, when I got there, they had just opened up the bar side where they got a liquor license for a restaurant on the bar side. And they were still serving uh, plates, platters of candy and milkshakes and cakes in the other room in the showroom anatomically correct gingerbread people right that that was their shtick and how did you okay so let's go back to your first time in toronto so you've been doing it in montreal for a little bit you decide fuck i'm gonna go to the biggest city you drive to toronto what what what's the next move well there was also a transition in between yuck x came into montreal oh like stitches lasted about three months and uh, for some reason they kicked ernie out of the bar go figure Mm -hmm. and so he was looking for another location then he went to stitches at maxwell's on uh, kennedy and president kennedy and elmer street and so there were gaps in between, like three, four-month gaps in between club openings. And then uh, the March of 1980, Yuck Yucks opened up in Montreal. So that's how you, you met? Yeah, that's how I started with started Yuck Yucks. Started with Yuck Yucks. So you started going there, and then you... Uh, I started going there. The uh, the MC manager, Paul K. Willis, liked me. He was uh, in a troupe called the Troupe Grotesque. Very funny. Hard edge. Mm-hmm. And they did a lot of writing for CBC and shit. So he's always been in CBC and working for CBC. So he passed away a while back, too, with pancreatic cancer. So they're all dying. And uh, they were fans of mine. Breslin could really not give a shit about me at that point. I'm just a uh, working class going with my shirt not tucked in. Right. <laughs> Which is very fashionable now. Way ahead of my time. <laughs> so when I went to Toronto, uh, you know, they knew of me. Their club closed in Montreal. Yeah. Massive mismanagement. You don't go into Montreal and go, we're Toronto. There's, yeah, yeah. Well, there's a rivalry there. You know, you got to pander a little You'd bit. You rivalry. Yeah, well, based on sports, but uh, just, yeah, most rivalries start that way. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when I moved to Toronto, they had their club, and uh, they were talking expansion. They were doing tours out west where they take comics out to promote Yuck Yucks. And I did my first one in 82, and that's when things pretty much turned around. Your first tour? Yeah. So you're like three years into the game. You go on tour, and who's around at that point? Who's like the Yuck Yucks roster, quote? Oh, the roster? Uh, Howie Mandel was around. Uh, Steve Brinder was a funny comic, but sort of never read totally full-time. But uh, Jim Carrey was around at the time. Uh, Larry Horowitz, Mike McDonald was uh, their, their top runner. Uh, Lawrence Morgenstern, me, Howard Nimitz, Simon Rakoff. There was a... There's several others, but uh, they had a nice little tight roster, you know. They yeah. had like maybe 20, 30 comics right. at the time. And, uh, you know, I'd say 20 of them were good enough to play internationally. Mm-hmm. And did you work a lot with uh, like a Jim Carrey or Howie Mandel? Uh, no, just occasionally. Like anybody else would work another comic on the stage. You know, if you're both on the same show, hey, how you doing? Yeah. yeah. But now, you know, it's like now you look back 36 years and there's like 600 comics and 20 of them are, are really good enough to play internationally. And <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's always that cream of the crop thing. But, yeah, there was a there was strong talent at the beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, there was only one club. It was very competitive. You had to be better than the next guy or as good as the next guy in order to get stage time because there was some serious competition going on there. Mm-hmm. So to become a headliner at Yuck Yucks uh, didn't take very long. You know, the first time you headline there, it's like, well, now I got 
I just had Howie Mandel and Mike McDonald go on in front of me. Let's see what I can do. Right. And uh, when you hold your own ground, they use you more often. Yeah. And you had to back then. It was a little more cutthroat. The competition was Well, different. no, no. It was actually healthier back then. Was because it? Because yeah. the competition was against yourself. You know, you had right. to be better like golf. You know, you're not playing the other golfer. You're playing you. Right. And the result is the audience reaction and the recognition from the industry that you're doing that well. And then they use you. But, mm-hmm. you know, it was healthy. They went out there and you tried to take their wave and carry it on. And they tried to, like... You know, do their best set and stand out the most. And it was all very healthy competition. It wasn't like people giving you bad intros to screw you up and right, do, right, doing right. 15 minutes of their best squirting material before they bring on the political headliner. Mm. You know, that kind of cock block, comedic cock blocking that goes on now. It's like back then, you DMC set up the acts. You know, it was about mm-hmm. the good of the show, it wasn't about their own ego. They did the time they were allotted and they did it as well as they could to make themselves stand out and be as funny as everybody else but at the same time with consideration for the act that's coming up next you know you know don't do 15 minutes of squirt jokes in front of uh you know jim carrey doing singing impressions it's just right when did you become a headliner at this point you're touring you're not a headliner in three years in are you oh no i was a headliner before that yeah pretty two tour yeah uh they sent me out on some bizarre road gigs you know they sent me up north bay one time and it's like uh, I think Simon Rakoff got fired the night before on the Thursday, and they need to rush me up there to replace him for four shows on Friday and Saturday. Apparently, Simon couldn't handle the load and because I got up there, and I found out as soon as, I, well, first show's 8 o'clock, and the second one starts at 11. That's a long break between shows. Yeah, yeah. No, it's only a half hour. You just got a half hour to turn over the room. How many more acts are on this show? Just me, thanks. That's good. So I gotta, you're expecting me to do two-and-a-half-hour shows. Is that what you're telling me in 1981? And did you? Yes. How does one do two and a half hours, two years in? I mean, there's well, got to be some... How, how does someone run a 26-mile marathon, you know, uh, either quickly or slowly? <laughs> right. Yeah, the distance isn't the question. It's the rate of laughs you get. It's not standing up there and talking for two and a half hours. Anybody can babble for two and a half hours mm-hmm. about maintaining a laugh load. But that's too, that's too long. Two and a half hours. I mean, who can sit through a comedy show? That I mean, a comedy show itself is too long, two and a half hours, but one person for two and a half hours? Well, too- in, in theory, yes, it's too long because by the time the headliner gets out there, they're either burnt out or, or bored out and uh, they're right. not ready for another act. But if you have them for the entire time, then you set the pace and you set the agenda and you set the, you know, it's, if you're keeping them laughing and they're enjoying it, they'll watch it for hours. But two years in, you couldn't have had that much material so you're improvising a lot i guess are you working the crowd how do you how do you get through that uh interestingly enough uh you learn you adapt you know Mm -hmm. it's like uh, what i had to do was immediately it's like i don't think i have two and a half hours of material let me check my notebook there's a lot of stuff that i don't (laughs) do anymore because as you're writing at that stage it's like your first 10 is great when you get up to like 15 you're feeling good about it but then you go ah, that first five doesn't fit with the last five right. now the middle five sort of is okay and then you keep reducing like a good sauce you know just reduce 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 and you get to a point where you've got a set that a half hour that you're you feel good about and you've got all this residual material that you don't do anymore so it's in the notebook so i'm flipping through the notebooks and i'm going how do we put this together i'm very big on arrangement you know the, the ellipticalness of a set is important to me but I realize also I have some emceeing skills. I've been emceeing. So seeing that I have to open up the shows, a certain amount of emceeing I have to do anyways to mm-hmm. welcome the guests and blah, blah, blah. So why not just integrate the material with the emceeing process of chatting them, 
and whatever relates to a bit that I might have in the conversation, we just segue into that, and it seems seamless to them, but then back into the audience for more questioning and panning. Right, right. Put that bit that fits with that and elongate everything with the both. And I managed to get through the first one, and the second one I felt quite comfortable about it because it wasn't so foreign, an idea of integrating those two performances together to elongate the show. Ooh, that was cleverly said. Hmm. And uh, then the next two shows were easy. And then after that, uh, time was never a fear factor. I can't imagine once you're, you're contracted to do two and a half hours, yeah, anything after that is... Well, I, I wasn't necessarily told even, you know, there was Yuck Yuck's idea of, oh, yeah, this guy's got a bit of an ego. Let's put him in his place and give him something he can't handle and crush his ego. And it's like, sorry, boys. They scratched their head for years on how I pulled that off because the people were really happy with the show. You say ego... I find every comic when you're like you're two or three, you're like I got this, I'm the best. Well, did, you have to project a certain amount of confidence to to of do course, it. Of you course, of course, you got to amplify yourself up. Did you ever get moments early on where your ego was put in check, where you're like, oh fuck, maybe I don't have this lockdown as well as I thought? I, I've never really thought I had it locked down as well as I thought. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's pissing on the beach with Picasso, isn't it? You know, mm. you do your show that night, the audience leaves, the waves comes in, wash away that. That show, that show doesn't exist anymore. Do you have any horrible bombing stories from early in the days? Oh, there's always bombing stories. Yeah. Fuck, kidding. <laughs> anybody, anybody who says they never bombed is lying right through their teeth. Oh, everybody you? does for sure. The, I, you know, George Carlin bombed in front of my eyes at Yuck Yucks one yeah. night. You know, because the audience was starstruck and jaw mm-hmm. dropped, and thirty minutes of George going, "Don't, don't tell me I'm the only one. Wouldn't that be weird if I was the only one?" And we're dying in the back of the room because he's hysterical and the audience is just jaw-dropped, stunned. Mm-hmm. So there's all kinds of bombing. You know, I did a show in Manchester, England, a week after the American invasor, in, investor Glazer bought their football club, Manchester United, and they had a hard-on for Americans first place from Bush and Cheney. Mm-hmm. So buy our football club, you bastards. I just walked in, hey, good evening, how are you? Fuck you, you can't go back to America! Lovely sentiment, but I'm Canadian. Same difference, you fucking wanker. And then 50 people heckling for a full 20 minutes. Ugh. And I used to be a master at heckling. But if you don't know where it's coming from, there's no defense of it. I'm, yeah. I'm Al Pacino up in the balcony. Fuck you, fuck you. Yeah, <laughs> just yeah. taking bullets from them. And just the worst set of my life. Right. But then afterwards, I was told why. So the next show I do, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know I'm a foreigner, but I'm not the asshole butcher football club. Lighten the fuck up. Ah, he knows why we're angry. Okay, he's one of us now. Mm. And it's that easy to avoid it. But if if you don't know where it's coming from, you're stepping on a landmine. Right. You know what I mean? There's a roadside bomb waiting for you. There's nothing you can do to protect yeah, yeah. yourself against that unless you know it's there. Yeah. So, yeah, there's always bombing, you know, sometimes intentionally. Right. I don't like the way that audience liked that last act. It was a hack. That's what you guys like? Fuck yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm doing just for me now. Mm-hmm. And you don't like that? Good. Oh, you're going to boo me because I'm saying too much? Get the fuck out then. Mm-hmm. I used to love watching Sam Kennison empty a room in Toronto. <laughs> Starts with a, uh, 240 people, ends up with 28 sitting in the front going, yeah, go Sam. And then all of a sudden, oh, he's on TV. He's on Saturday Night Live. Oh, he's on Letterman. Oh, Sam Kennison, and he's the... Uh, and everybody stays for the show after that, you see. Right, Public right. perception, too. If, they to- if they're-, they're told you're a star and they know you're a star, it doesn't matter what the fuck you do on stage. You're almost bomb-proof. Let's talk about that a little bit, because you and I were chatting just before, and we're talking about uh, each person's definition of success. Like, what is success to you? And you said, uh, you-, you answered in a very good response. You said, I've been doing this for 36 years, 
still doing it. That to me is success. Yeah, you don't have to be at the top of the totem. You don't have to make the most money in the world. You know, people don't realize that great, great comics never make it. I'm not saying I'm a great, great comic, but I'm saying the odds and the the circumstances that lead to that, you know, tumbling effect that that you know stardom opportunity, you know, seize your opportunity. You, everybody will get one or two in their lifetime. You know, if you're doing it for the right reasons, eventually they'll come around. But you have to seize that opportunity and the, the domino effect of all those things coming into line. You know, very few people make it to that level where they're mm -hmm. making millions of dollars from it. So what is success? You know, enjoying what you're doing for 36 years, making people laugh for 36 years, carrying on in good spirits and uh, not, you know, spirits fine, egos fine, comedy's getting better. So what do you think the difference would be then? You're sort of touching on it, but like you start with you're doing it same time as like a Howie Mandel or a Jim Jim Carrey. What what makes them go on to Hollywood and, and like what what's the difference? First part of capitalism, capital baby. That's what it was. Howie Mandel's family bought uh, a factory uh, carpet factory outlet in Los Angeles and bought him his green card. Oh, is that you're right? That's and right. if you hear Howie say it, he's walking down Sunset Boulevard, so the comedy store, bing, hear him. I'm here because he didn't give any credit to Canada where he came from or the system he came out of because the spotlight goes to the last place that you came from. What about a Jim we Carrey who came from nothing, basically? He's famously talked about how he came from... Ching, rich manager boy. A rich guy's son decides he wanted to be in show business and manage uh, Jim Carrey, so he paid for his green cards and all his uh, legal expenses to get a green card and go down to L.A., and Jim's talent obviously prevailed, and uh, he had to upgrade management and cut him loose. I think his name was Holoff. But Holoff got him down there. You know, he, he was already getting very popular in Canada, but there's not enough work in Canada for a singing impressionist rubber man. Right. So you <laughs> think, so... It's money. Back then, it's, uh, I mean, still probably, but back then money. specifically, for the, the only thing that separates the people that went on to Hollywood would be... Having someone in your corner with a with a heavy wallet. I, I'm saying that's an integral part of it. Right, got you it. Know, you still need the talent. Anybody, you know, anybody can save up yeah. ten grand and get their paperwork. They still have to have the talent to sell themselves when they get there. In These those, people had the talent, right. and the opportunity was somebody else helping them to get down there. Right, right, right. You know, we can't we can't cross borders as freely as most free trade zones in this world. Yeah, for that's a whole some political reason. But the thing, it's it's more than just the opportunity. You got to be prepared for your opportunity, right? You know, and you know, uh, Yuck Yucks has actually said to my face, and I don't mind putting this on the air at all. And I quote: "It's in our best interest to keep comics living hand to mouth because we let them make too much money. They'll save it up. They'll move to the states, become a big star, outprice themselves out of our market. Then we can't use them anymore. Mm. So there's an intentional." thing going on with the business about where we can't let our guys get too big or they'll they'll fuck off right so keep them all poor keep them all hungry keep them all begging it seems to be the prevailing policy of large groups like that mm -hmm. and independent clubs in this country all have their own little fucking ego you know it's like all these club owners who opened up at the at the uh, the rush of it you know what i mean when it just started the boom at the beginning of the boom these people who jumped on the bandwagon called their club monkey nuts all think they're fucking geniuses because they had 10 years of good attendance right they had 10 years of good comics when they jumped into the onto the bandwagon they had 10 years of enthusiastic audiences when they jumped on the bandwagon and now when the bandwagon sort of slows down 
and the cycle prevails of best comics going to TV and the worst comics filling in those spaces and people get tired of going to clubs. They want to see what the better stuff on TV for free. Mm-hmm. And then TV gets so homogenized that they want to go back to clubs five years later to see stuff they can't see on TV. You know, it's just part of the cycle. So, you know, independent clubs in Canada, they all think they're, they're, they're monkey nut geniuses, you know. Well, are there a lot of those like left your... over from the, the, the boom, well, like independent... Uh, Winnipeg rumors. Right. That's a good example. You know, it's like you go there and you you crush their audience, and uh, you know then the new owner goes, "Well, I don't think he's as good as he thinks he is." Well, you're not listening to the audience either. Mm-hmm. You're not listening to the act. You're not listening to the audience. Right. And then they, well, he's just a Canadian act, and uh, most independent clubs now depend on uh, booking American acts. You know, anybody who ever had a sitcom was ever on TV, anybody's name they ever heard of before. You know, they're going to book them in Canada before they book a Canadian mm-hmm. because the prevailing attitude with Canadians, and it's, it's already stayed, it's not their fault either because there's not proper exposure or star system in Canada, but they just assume if you were any good, you'd be in America, and if you're from America, you must be good. Right. So it's a double whammy against Canadian comics, and these part-time comedy promoters who come in for a few years and decide to take that easy route of selling comedy because... Take the Blackfoot in uh, Calgary. Yuck Yucks was there for years. That room sold out tons with Canadian talent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it, it was involved more marketing, more consistency, you know, uh, you know, brand name, Yuck Yucks, all of that contributed to that. But the easier, the easier tack for them to take is I'll just bring up an American that everybody knows, and we'll pay them really good money, and we'll use our local acts as MCs and middles and cancellation replacements and slow summer trend acts and yeah and they're just constantly disrespected canadian acts and they're not you know they're not treated well at all on on a, on a general basis by any of the independent clubs and certainly not by the uh, large chains right so it's a dismal state of affairs for comedy in canada you know that's one of the reasons why i left 10 years ago you mm-hmm. know aside from playing every uh, stick in the mud in canada including alert bay elmsmer island look that one up fuckers <laughs> Uh, you know, I've done it all. You know, yeah. it's like I've done as much TV as you can do there. Uh, I'm not going to get a comedy now because Sandra Fair doesn't like me making fun of the CBC and CTV in my comics. So, you know, screw them. Yeah. You know, what the fuck? i got no ambitions for Canada at all. Even today, being back here, I've got no ambitions at all. It's more of a platform for me to bounce off to a larger market down south. And you that is the goal, to go head back down yeah. south? Yeah, it's starting all over again. You know, I've been away for 10 years. People in Canada don't even know who the fuck I am. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna prop up a, a an Arsenio Hall show from 1987. No, nobody gives a shit. Okay. Neither do I. Really, right. that's something I did in '87. Who gives a fuck? What first, am I doing first now? incarnation Ar- Arsenio Hall show. Let's talk about. Let's go back a little bit again. So you're in the '80s. So you've you've been through the comedy boom. Was it as big? I mean, I know the answer is no. It wasn't as big in, in Canada, but there's certainly a feel of that happening in Canada as well. No, it was as big in Canada. Oh, it was as big in Canada. If you look at population, yeah. Right, you know, per capita. 300 million people just looks bigger. Right, right. The same percentage of people going to comedy. So there were clubs like in every fucking buttfuck town that you can think of. Well, there was, there was a yuck club in every buttfuck town you can think about. Right. You know, they started in uh, Edmonton at the Point Tavern, and uh, they had Judy... And uh, Brownie, you know, two uh, caterers, mm-hmm. but smart ladies, who uh, ran the club and was very successful. They expanded to Calgary, got that deal at the Blackfoot, and then uh, Yuck Yucks kept expanding. But those earlier tours that were done in 80, 81, and 82 by Yucks Comics, going out to represent, 
you know, was the big sales pitch to get those club chains together because Mark right. at least had that much right. You have to connect the dots in order to justify the expense of moving people across this country. It's just mm-hmm. too big a country. Flights are very expensive. You know, you're paying $500 a flight per act, and you're traveling at uh, three acts. Three clubs can easily absorb that uh, that overhead. Right. So the idea of having a connecting chain is was brilliant. You know, kudos to Mark. That's how it happened. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't all bad. You know, it went bad, but it wasn't all bad. Yeah, because at the peak, there was like 30 yak yaks across the country. No, there was never that many. I think the peak was maybe 16 to 18. But uh, I, it More than that, because there's a, in, in oh, Ottawa. They, they've had over forty diff, uh, over 50 different clubs, but they keep closing and reopening Got in it. different areas. You know? Right, because yeah, cause in Ottawa, there's like this show, like the In little... Ottawa, fucking Halifax, they've had more yak yak signs up than Irving. Well, no, I just mean in <laughs> Ottawa, there's like a showcase in the club of like all old yaks memorabilia, and on there, there's a sweatshirt with all the yak yaks clubs that were... And it's like there were a lot of clubs. I mean, I think now there's like 16, but back then, I mean, fucking Thunder Bay, Windsor. I mean, all these. Well, places the, the, they were tagging any place that would do a regular yuck yuck show and put their sign up. Got it. They weren't actual comedy right, clubs right, per se. But yeah, they had a tremendous boom in the 80s. You know, we were rocking. I sold out Edmonton in a snowstorm for fuck's sake. Mm-hmm. They put our picture in the paper. You know, Mike McDonald would break my attendance record. Uh, Wayne Fleming would break his attendance record. I'd break Wayne Fleming's attendance record. And, you know, Kenny Robinson would come out of nowhere and break all our attendance records, and then we'd break it back. And, you know, it was a great challenge going back around to draw more people. And they were completely sold out. And were you making good money back then? No, we were making shit money. That's the whole point. You know, we were playing these clubs four times a year. And because of that, there are 10 or 15 guys at the time who could go to a club four times a year and keep it fresh. Right. You know, Rubik's Cube, your material round, always adding more to it, you know. Yeah, there was a lot going on, and, and it was very successful. And we were getting $600 a week to play five five shows, mm-hmm. five sold-out shows at 420 people a show at $12 a head. And, you know, you don't have to be a genius to go, well, there's got to be at least 400 people at $4. Wait a minute. Why am I getting $120 a show? Right. You're to see me, for fuck's sake. They didn't come to see the MC. They didn't come to see the middle. I broke this attendance record. Why aren't I getting a better share of this pie, which mm-hmm. was the original promise of the dream? So when it was finally forced up to $1,000 a weekend, then the you know, the wisdom of Yakex leadership, well, how do they get a better deal on us? There's no way we can let that happen. So we'll let them play only twice a year in these clubs, and we'll bring in $600 acts from Seattle and and Spokane, whatever, and keep the cheap cheap acts on. Just to save $400 a week, they put on lesser acts and work the guys that made them famous less. So now we're making 2000 a year off each club instead of 2400 a year each club. Right, there, right. fuck, you don't benefit from us. And it's always been that scam of uh, we're never going to let you get one lo- get up on us. Right. And it's always been that way. And, you know, if you're not at Yuck Yucks, who has 12 clubs, and the two or three independent clubs that are out there go, well, if you're not with them, then you're at our mercy. We can pay you anything we want. We can treat you any way we want. Mm-hmm. We could ignore Canadian comics altogether if we want. Mm-hmm. And that, that's the way it evolved eventually, and then it all went to puke. All went to puke in the nineties. How do you how do you survive through that? Do you get side jobs or do you? Because you've pretty much been a pure comic this whole time, right? Oh, I, I can I can live like a fucking monk if I have to. Yeah. But yeah, you know, the, the entire decade of the nineties, I had Jeff Silverman at Yuckx trying to get rid of me because mm-hmm. I was the guy that stood up to them, and they don't like 
anybody making an exam. Every time they fired me, the story would get around of why they fired me, and the comics would rally behind, yeah, that's true, we should get more money for that. I literally went into his office one day and asked for a raise for the headliners in the Toronto Club because we were doing Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, two Friday, two Saturday, one Sunday for $800. Mm. And Thursday, Friday, and Saturday constantly sold out at $12 a head, 240 seats. So I went in and asked. I said, it wouldn't be outrageous to give the better guys another 200 a week on that. Oh, we can't afford it. We don't have the money. Well, let's do the math. You're sold out five shows a week, every weekend. Just take that bulk. Yes, at 240 a show. No, we're only licensed for 220. Yes, I know that. Last week when the fire inspectors came in and you hit all those tables and chairs in my sunroom at my apartment, it would be nice if somebody came by and got them. But let's <laughs> round it off to 200 so you don't lose a fucking gasket on this. Yes. So 200 people at $12 a head, that's $2,400. Yes. You pay 800 for the MC. Yes. You pay $50 a slot for the MC. Uh, two, sorry. You pay 800 for the headliner. You pay $50 a slot for the MCs, and you only pay weekend slots. Your entire total overhead for comedy expense in the week is $1,600, yes, leaving you a profit of $800 from one show. Right. And you say you can't afford to give the headliners another $200? What about our booze? Do you think we get our booze for free? I went, oh, my God, I'm not even talking about that gold mine yet. That's where you make all your money. Right. We're not even asking for a piece of that. Get out. Get out of my office. Get out. And that's how they negotiate. So why did Ron get kicked out? Well, he was asking for $200 more because blah, 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 blah. The story goes around. Yeah, that all makes sense. And all of a sudden, everybody's clamoring about it. And they had to give it up. Mm-hmm. And eventually, Mark would ask me to come back because Mark has always sort of been in my corner. You know, even though his, his hands off on his ridiculous Stalinistic organization that's running it for him. He's always sort of been in my corner. So oh, he brings me back. And he's thrown me out several times himself. But... And you started the night at Yuck Yuck's uh, a crash and burn night? That was your thing? Ah, uh, that was my baby, yeah. What year was that? Uh, I don't know. Was that uh, 97, I think? Oh, so it wasn't that long ago. No, no. Right. <clears throat> I had always hosted the Ramature Nights beforehand. There were a handful of us in the early 80s who did all the hosting. It was uh, me, Simon Rakoff, uh, Howard Nimitz, Lawrence Morgenstern, and a couple of others did mm-hmm. most of the hosting. Between the four of us, though, we pretty much wrote all the hosting jokes you're hearing today. Right, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I had experience in it, and you know, like I said, in the nineties, they've been trying to get rid of me for ten years. You're not a good corporate citizen. Does that mean I don't suck your cock? I don't know. What does that mean? So uh, to shut them up, Mark, uh, I went to Mark and let, give me your amateur night. What is it? Twenty, forty people a week. Give it to me. Let me let me book it. Let me run it. Let me set up the show. Let me do it my way, and I guarantee you, you'll have people in the room. No, no, what do you know about it? We've been booking this. That's just the way the Monday night is. No, it isn't. You're living in a fucking bubble. Yeah. You have no idea of what works, how it works, why it works. And they gave it to me, and they did everything they could to obstruct the process, which I anticipated, so I just I sidestepped all their uh, barriers. And within a month, uh, it was sold out. What, you brought, what did you bring to that to, to make it sold out? Like, reality yeah you like, know people go to an amateur night because they want to see people take a nosedive they mm-hmm. want to see failure they want to see the crash they want to see the burn it's like racing cars or you know hockey hits they want to see the pummeling but in that environment if a, a flower buds great but that's the gladiator pit comic comedy's going to have to live in because that's the reality 
Too many comics were going out there pandering and going, no, come on, be nice. Didn't he try hard? No, he was shit. He was absolutely, tragically shit. Yeah. And it comes to an absurdity where it's funny how shit it is. So why not exploit that part of it too? The formula was very simple. Instead of having the same 15 guys on every week because they can call earliest and know the secret number to the agent, it's the same redundant show every week. The same people doing the same bullshit five minutes every fucking week. And people are bored with it, so I changed the formula. I want five people guaranteed every week who have never been on stage. Keep that fresh craziness alive. Mm-hmm. You know, five people will get a slot the following week based on their attempt to do something bigger or better or different, and take a chance on something artistically. You know that, you know, or be successful at what they did. And the strongest sets are the most innovative ones. Got the reward system, and you try to do that as fairly as possible through your own eye. And the other five is the general populace of uh, amateurs. You try to be as fair as possible in giving them slots occasionally. Nobody nobody ever gets refused. It's just there's not enough room for everybody. And the formula has to be five new, five reward, and five from the talent pool. I thought that was the fairest way to do it. I also instituted a workshop uh, before the show for anybody who wants to come down and talk about comedy and do workshops on it between six and eight. And after the show, and the most important part of it was the critique session. Where if you want to, bring down a VHS tape, we'll tape you, and I will sit there after the show with everybody who wants to, on my own time, on my own dime, and break down their videos, freeze frame. Look what you did wrong there. You see why you sit, you didn't get a laugh? You're staring up at the ceiling. There's no contact with the audience. Mm-hmm. And some people go, oh, all you did was just point out all the things they were doing wrong. Well, what the fuck else am I supposed to be doing in a critique session? I'm not going to waste time patting you in the back and sucking your dick because you got one chuckle out of five minutes. Right. This is how you get two chuckles in five minutes. If you don't like the harshness of that, get the fuck out of Sparta. Mm. Yeah. And there, there was some controversy around that, like three or four years ago. We talked about this this weekend where you went on a radio show and you were sort of... Uh, bushwhacked. <laughs> bushwhacked, as you say. I still don't sort of fully understand what that controversy was about. What were you accused of doing in those days of when you hosted the Amateur Night? What was that about? Well, you know, uh, let's not get the uh, cart before the horse. It was very simple. Darren Frost, clearly I mentioned his name, an embittered little untalented troll. At the time, he was trying to do his uh, dark, dark humor, and he was on the Amateur Night program, and... Uh, one night he thought he did better than the five people I chose for the next week as the reward system. You know, and he was very angry and bitter about it. Yep, these are decisions you got to make when you're running a show. And I've talked to him about it at the initial part of his anger and bitterness. Go, look, maybe I was wrong. Maybe I made a mistake, but i got to make these decisions and everybody's got to live with them. Sorry, I'm doing the best I can out here. But I don't believe he was the best that night. I don't think he earned that slot that night, obviously, because I didn't pick him. So, you know, decisions are going to be made that people aren't going to be happy with. Get over it, you know. And it's always just snowballed into this, I destroyed comedy, I ruined comedy careers. No, I made more careers. And you'd be fucking surprised who came out of that program who did well. Mm-hmm. Can you, like who? Oh, Ed Pollock was one, the uh, dentist who killed himself, another dead comic. Mm-hmm. He came out of that. He took the classes very seriously. A lot of people came out of that. Joanna Downey came out of that. A lot of, Joanna Downey. Prime example, when I told him, you're not going to get the time you need here on, at Yuck Yucks to progress. There's just too many people and too little slots available to go on once or twice a month or even once every three months. Go out there. Find a room in your neighborhood that's dark on certain nights. Put up a mic stand and a light. Tell all your friends. Start a show. Start your own shows. You know, Integrate those things between each other so everybody gets more stage time. And Joanna Downey is the most successful example of that. And 
Mm-hmm. So there was there was a lot of people who came out of it. I can't remember them all right now. Fuck, it's just a blur. But so long. But a lot of people came out of that and did quite well from it and continue to do comedy today. So him, run, I ruined people's careers. All you did was sit them down and point out all their mistakes and make them feel like shit. No, no, that's your interpretation of that. What I did was point out all their mistakes so they don't do them again. Because that was part of the class. The only mortal sin in my class is to repeat the same mistake twice. You can fall on your face and die in your arse, but you're going to get another shot on this stage sometime. Mm-hmm. Nobody's excluded. There were lots of positive things about that show, but if the little bitter man wants to focus on his interpretation of negatives, then fine. So he invited me on his show, and I figured, oh, maybe he's buried the hatchet. Maybe he's over it. No, he goes, hides in a separate fucking booth from the other, from the other two comics who are on his team to attack me. And two days, what are we talking about? What's the subject matter? You know, give me some heads up on what I got to mentally prepare for. And it was all very hush hush. I'm going to get him on my radio show. I'm going to tear his arse out. You know, he made he made misstatements. He made uh, untruths. Uh, he intentionally attacked rudely, insultingly, constantly throughout his entire show. And yeah, you know, I just barked back at him, and I set the record straight. And anybody who heard it, who knows the facts, like Mark Breslin, listened to it. Well, why wouldn't you release that? You came across ahead on that. Mm-hmm. You know, you made more sense. You were more articulate. You made better arguments. You won that argument. Why wouldn't you release it? Because when I came out of the booth, I went, "You little shit! If you were mad, I'd take you outside and bitch slap you." You know, bushwhack me like this, invite me to your studio just to do this? Fuck you. To lie, to imply, to use your audience as, as an influence against me? Fuck you. And next time you bushwhack somebody, make sure they sign the release before they go in the booth. Right. You got no release. You can't use this. Fuck you. Mm-hmm. And that's all it was, really, him being his little bitter self. And, you know, Dave Martin, you know, being the, the wuss behind him. It's like, Dave, you knew he was going to do this. Oh, I didn't know he was going to Dave, look me in the fucking eye and tell me you didn't know this was his intent. All right, fuck you, defriend. Bye bye. Mm-hmm. You want to take your sides like that? You want to go with the evil little fucking troll, the lying little evil troll? And I can prove his lies. They're very simple. Jack Norman created that show with me. No, he didn't. Ask Jack Norman. <laughs> Jack Norman will be the first to go. No, you just brought me in to play videos, and I stole the show from you afterwards when you, uh, you shut it down and Yuck Yuck wasn't allowed to use it anymore. They used me because I knew how it ran. Mm-hmm. But he never ran it properly, and it went back to almost zero again afterwards. Within two months, they were down to 40 people a show again after I left it. Yuck Yucks literally fired me from their agency, but that's okay. You can still do Crash and Burn. No, I'm not putting 50000 a year in this hand while the other hand slaps me. That show closes down right now. Right. And that's when Jack Norman took it over, but they had to change it to uh, Sink or Swim because I clearly proved with every piece of ink in Toronto that covered the opening of that show. Toronto Magazine, The Sun, The Star, every paper covered it. The Now, iMagazine, they all covered it, and that was part of my plan to, to cash in on that familiarity with these publications who knew me and turn them on to the exciting idea of what I'm doing with Amateur Night. I had, I had camera, uh, TVs on both sides of the stage. If somebody went beyond their five minutes, then a video took them off. And the appropriate video for the act that they're doing, they're lunatic. You know, I pop on Hitler having a, a rally. And so you were saying you used all ink in Toronto to prove that what that in, that crash and burn was your intellectual property? Yeah. Oh, got it. And they dropped the name to Sink and Swim, but got they it. tried to follow the format, and they did it poorly. And how many years did you run that? Oh, I, it was a solid year. 
Okay, yeah. It was a solid year. That was the point, though. Mm-hmm. As it got more successful, the uh, uh, agency, the agents in the agency, not all of them, but Ed Schmill. Yeah, that's right. I mentioned your name, fucker. <laughs> uh, you know, it just made them more embittered that I'm right and they're wrong. You know, they couldn't turn that night around, and I told them I could, and what do you know? We've been doing it. No, no, you don't know anything. That's mm-hmm. the problem. You think you know everything because you're a cork in the fucking funnel. You're the one that stops good talent from getting through, and you're the one that leads mediocrity through because they give you an extra envelope every month for 10% on the corporate gigs you're giving them. You thieving piece of shit. And you're making decisions on comedy? No. So it just makes them crazier that I'm right and they're wrong. You know, they do everything they can to prove the comics are wrong, that they're right. And I just mm-hmm. kept proving them wrong. They, they couldn't stop it. So at what point then after that do you decide to go to the UK and why the UK? Uh, well, I was thinking of uh, America. I even signed up for a contest in Seattle, Seattle Comedy Competition, right. which is an international comedy competition. It's rather big. I'm did not you, a, f- did I'm you not do a that? fan. I'm not no? a fan of competitions. I don't like how subjective they are. Did you, know? you go do, down and do it? Uh, I signed up for it, and uh, it was in November. Then 9-11 happened in September. They knocked down the buildings, and everybody and their granny were knitting a flag, and I was clearly told off the top, there's no way a Canadian's going to win it this year. Mm-hmm. And I never planned on winning it. I didn't give a shit about winning it. Like I said, it's so subjective. But if I could make the finals and be in the finals, everybody from L.A. comes up to see the finals the last week. So there's agents and producers and that. They come to see the top five guys they found in the country. So that's what I wanted out of it. So I don't care. Yeah, I understand. You know, it's patriotism. It's all that. You guys are hurting. Got no problem with them. What are the odds? What are the odds the first time I sign up for fucking competition, they get hit by terrorism? Patriotism kicks in. So, uh, yeah, I came in third at the end of that. Well, I was second place for 17 shows, and they had to make an adjustment to make it an all-Canadian, sh- uh, an all-American finish. So they let me have third anyway, so that wasn't too bad. And mm-hmm. They offered me another fe- uh, another competition in San Francisco. I'm automatically accepted any time I want to apply for that one because uh, I was in the finalist in that one. And I just went, nah, it was a bad experience. You know, I left America with my pants around my ankles and blood and semen pissing out of my ass. So I was like, gee, I want to do that again. <laughs> yeah, it's just humiliating. But 12 years later, my friend talks me into doing the Boston competition. And uh, as soon as I sign up for it the next month, they blow up the marathon. What oh, are the no. odds? <laughs> what are the odds? You had signed up that year? I had signed up in March, and in April, they blew up the marathon. The 2012, I think that was? 20, yeah, yeah, the Boston Marathon. Yeah, yeah. They blew it up. <laughs> I'm back in the same position again. There's no fucking way I'm going to win that contest. There's no way I'm even going to be noticed. Maybe it's you. Maybe the terrorists want to prevent you from winning any comedy contest. You so. know, it might be might be that. I want to test it one more time. Do America's Got Talent see if the Russians will nuke the fuckers? <laughs> and, uh, okay, so, but let's get back to, so what makes you go to the UK? You said you're, you're coming back to Canada with your uh, pants around your ankles and blood and semen. Pissing out of my ass. Pissing yeah, that's the phrase ass. I used. No, it was just, uh, at first it was like I wanted to go to America. You know, I figured that contest will get me some profile. Maybe somebody will sponsor me. We'll get my shit together and go down there. And then once that happened, you know, everybody, the border's sealing up. They're paranoid. Everybody's freaking out. You know, the business is in flux. I went, well, fuck, that's not the right time to try to go down to America. Mm-hmm. But there are 60 million English-speaking people on a small island just east of here. So I'll go there. I knew some friends who went over there. Mike Wilmot went over early, uh, Craig Campbell, and uh, some very good comics. Tommy Stade went over earlier, Glenn Wool. 
there were some very good congressmen over there, and they 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 were they went in the late '90s, so they got established quite quickly because it was just starting to boom. Mm-hmm. Clubs were just starting to pop up like mushrooms in the forest everywhere, and they went over a great time. I went over in 2004, and maybe a little late, but uh, you know, good management could have uh, dealt with that. Bad management, bad bad management. 36 years of bad management, either incompetence, indifference, or pure fucking sabotage. I, such a wet dream to have an agent who gives a fuck, knows what they're doing. But it didn't happen over there, and, uh, you know, I enjoyed it all the time. I, I, I think I have the respect of the comedy community. Uh, just uh, they also go through this ageist thing, you know. It's like, oh, we want young comics with straight leg jeans and their hair looking like they just spent all day making it look like they just got up. Ah, we want more Russell Brands. Hmm. So the industry is sort of going that way. It's sort of collapsing. The bubble is, uh, has burst. Their major chain is in, in, uh, is in bankruptcy for the second time in five years. Yeah, because they went through a late comedy boom in the early 2000s, right? Well, late, late 90s, early 2000s. Late 90s, it, it started to boom, and I guess it peaked around uh, 2005 or so, 2004, mm-hmm. as I got there. I, when I got there, people were so complacent about the success that they thought they were responsible for, that they would not take this finger out of their ass to Google anybody. Mm. You know, it's like, if you want to play this club, you have to come up on a Saturday night to Liverpool, uh, do a 10-minute guest for us. And what professional comic is going to take a Saturday night off, pay for a train and a hotel to do a 10-minute set somebody may or may not see? Look at the tape. That's what tapes are for. You know, call clubs that they've played in, get some word on that. But, oh, you may not be able to play our room. Our room is different from all other rooms. It's just that kind of stupidity mm-hmm. that, that stops stops growth or access, accessibility. So it was going through that sort of stage there, and it's still sort of there now. But a uh, lot less shows, a lot less quality of comedy. You know, more people come in as top guys go to television. Openers become middles. Middles become headliners. Everybody's beyond their means. and. The whole thing sort of melts down. People won't pay 15 pounds to see mediocrity. Right. When they can see the good guys on TV who just moved up for free. So why would they do that? And they're very big on theater shows over there. There's a lot of competition with clubs on theater shows. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of 300, 800, 2,000 seat theaters in Britain. Some really old, beautiful buildings. Right. Quite frankly, if you can go in and fill up a 500 seat theater and get 80% of the door, you're going to make a fuck a load more money than you'll ever will in the club system. Right, the club right. system is designed to exploit. And we tolerate it because we need that exposure. We need that space. We need that quality of space, that quality of audience in order to hone our craft. So we accept a certain amount of that ex- exploitation. Mm-hmm. Ideally, it should be a mutually parasitic relationship. They need us more, actually, than we need them because we can do our comedy in any room. Right. But they can't, do, they can't put just anybody in their room for comedy. So it should be mutually parasitic. It just never is. It gets well, I mean, distorted. That, and now you're back here, but at least you spent 10 years over there that you can go, uh, you know, once or twice a year and sort of cherry pick the good gigs. And so yeah. you're in a pretty good position when it comes to Oh, it, was, it, it, it was by no means a waste of time. You know, I saw the world from there. You know, mm-hmm. I played the Middle East, South Africa, the, you know, Hong Kong, Tokyo, you know, Croatia. I was a big hit in Croatia. And Copenhagen liked me too. <laughs> I really like Copenhagen. Nicest people on the planet, next to Filipinos who smile more. But still, nice people. Right. Yeah. Cool. And so now you're back in Canada. I also just want to quickly talk about. We we mentioned some controversy. You're a man of controversy because you say what's on your mind, and you don't really 
sugarcoated or anything. You just say it like it mm. is. And the problem with the internet nowadays is that you can't tell or detect inflection or tone when you're saying something. So no. you could say something in a Facebook thread that we'll get into that in your mind Mm-mm. is sort of innocent in a are, way. Are you setting me up for this Montreal story? Yeah, I, I want to get into it because I want to get your side verbally instead of written because yeah, written, it, yeah, it, can, it can come across way more aggressive. But than, we're going to pause for a cigarette break. Yeah, let's take a cigarette break and we'll get that. Uh, we'll get to uh, that in a minute. So we'll be uh, right back in just a sec with Mr. Ron Vaudry. This episode, episode 13 of the Julian Dion Comedy Hour podcast, that's the third installment of the West Coast Tapes, is brought to you yet again by Echo One Photography. Toronto listeners, this is for you again. If you're looking to get some headshots done for whatever reason, you're a musician, comedian, actor, actress, business woman or guy or whoever, get some headshots. Go to Echo One Photography. They... They'll, they'll give you some amazing shots. Also, if you own a business in the Toronto area and you want to shoot some products for e-commerce or advertising purposes, look no further, folks. Echo One does it all. Email Eugene, that's E-U-G-E-N-E, at echo1photography.com and enter JDCH in the subject line for special offers. Yeah. All right, we're about to go back to the interview with uh, Ron Vaudry. Before we do, I thought I'd interject here a little bit. We uh, brought up some uh, sort of touchy subject with Ron about amateur night that he used to run at Yak Yaks downtown Toronto here in the late 90s, and that brought up some uh, controversy that uh, he faced a couple of years ago, I think about two years on XM Sirius Radio on Anything Goes, and Darren Frost came up. Darren, who is a friend of the show and... Uh, a man who I respect, and uh, he he was on episode nine, you may remember. So I figured since his name was brought up and uh, in such an aggressive way that we could uh, just sort of get his side on it. He could weigh in, and then uh, so I called him, played him the interview, and here's what Darren had to say, and then we'll get back to, um, we'll go for the close with, uh, with Ron Vaudry. All right, so here is my call. Now with Darren Frost. Hello? Darren Frost. Yes. How are you, my friend? I'm doing well. Good, good. Okay, so I have you on the line here because I interviewed Ron Vaudry for the podcast (laughs) today. Yeah. And it sort of came up, um, the controversy involving you two when you brought him on your on your show on XM. Yeah. And this was all around the Tuesday Crash and Burn amateur night that he he used to run. And yeah. I just sort of wanted to get clarification since he gave his side of the story because yeah. I brought it up because I wasn't clear what exactly the controversy was about and right. where you were coming from and, and why you wanted to, what you were trying to get out of him and sort of what you wanted to address and what sure. you would claim actually happened to you and, and why this was a problem. So if you could just, okay. for the listeners, clear up a little bit. And thanks, uh, thanks by the way, for doing this. Okay. And so just, uh, yeah. The, the All right, so what is- happened is, on my XM show, we had every comic that possibly could come on the show would come on the show. And that would include people I didn't even get along with because as long as they were respectful and we talked about the art of stand-up comedy, I think even two comics that hate each other, as long as they're respectful towards each other, can talk. Mm-hmm. And we had other people on the show that I was not fans of personally or professionally. 
and uh, but we still got great interviews. I mean, I'm not going to say the person's name, but one of them is still probably one of the best episodes that we had, and we got a lot of feedback from. So my my thing about the whole show was it's about the artist stand up comedy. You know, Ron is a talented comic. Personally, I don't like him. Uh, professionally, I don't like some of the things he's done, but he's still a funny comic. So even though we had 20 years of a history of me calling him a cunt, I pretty much called him a cunt for 20 years, but he knows that. I don't hide behind things. I talk to people how I talk to them. He knows that we don't have a good history. But I still said to him, hey, you're around. He's based in England. We could have some things to talk about. Come on the show. I'd already told Dave Martin, my co-host, he had already said Dave's name in the, in the interview, so we will now say it for the record, Dave Martin. And and so I, you, your intention was just to have money. It wasn't to attack him. You, you didn't pre-plan anything, right? First, first of all, Ron's an angry guy, too. And Ron can handle himself. So even if, let's say hypothetically, I was there to take him on, don't you think Ron could probably handle it based right. on his comedy style? Right. I mean, he's not a timid guy. So if, if the whole idea was to attack him, um, which it wasn't, but let's even run with that, might be good radio. He might come out on top if he's so great a comic that he says he is, okay? But that wasn't the intent of the show. When I spoke to Dave Martin, Dave Martin said that we have to bring up Amateur Night because that was such a controversial period for stand-up comedy and Ron's career in Toronto. Why was that so controversial? Because there were people that didn't like Ron's ideas, okay? Some people liked it, some people didn't. So was it the criticizing part afterward? That was the no. Contra- the, the whole it was the whole tone and the way Ron held himself. And he also got something very wrong. Ron is very good at revisionist history, okay? Uh, he said in in your interview with him, "quote I was doing my dark comedy." You know what kind of comedy I was doing back then. Mm. It was hack, happy comedy. You posted links for my interview. I was happy, clappy, fun boy. I was a cheerleader. I was very hacky. So he doesn't even remember correctly. I would kill on that material, and he wouldn't pick me. I'd respect him if he said, look, he was a hack and he was a a cheerleader. That's why I didn't pick him. I didn't think it was original. I'd respect that, but that's not what he said. Anyways, back to the story of I talked to Dave. Dave says we have to bring it up. I said, Dave, I was going to bring it up anyways, but it's very important that you feel that way too, so it's not me just bringing him in to attack him on that. Mm -hmm. So he also said that he was bushwhacked because I was down the hall, not in the same room as him. Well, you know what? Of the 100 episodes we did, probably 85 of them, I was not in the same room as the person we were interviewing. And was that just a technical thing? Because you didn't have enough That was a technical mics? thing. But of course, Ron was in this world of the whole world out to get him that he thought that was bushwhacking him. No, it wasn't. He was in the room with Dave and Rebecca Kohler, the two comics that were out to get him from the get-go. To this day, Rebecca still feels uncomfortable with the whole situation. She didn't like what happened. She probably didn't like my conduct or Ron's. But nobody was out to get him. Rebecca, if you heard the interview, and this is the other thing. He says I made statements and lies and all this. Well, if I did, why didn't he call me in, those, in that interview? Right. You hear the interview, he comes across good in it. Like you said, Mark Breslin listened to it and said, why didn't you let him play it? Because Ron lives in a world where Ron wants to call the shots. What Ron also doesn't understand is I did not have to get a waiver for him to sign. He came into XM Studios to record a show. He knew exactly what was going on. There's no waiver. We've done 100 episodes. Did I get anyone to sign a waiver? No, because they knew exactly what they were doing, recording a radio show. So then what happens, me and Ron, the show shuts down, and Ron makes statements in the control, in his room, about me, thinking I can't hear him down the hall. 
Then I told my producer, turn my mic back on. We had words. We then got toe-to-toe with each other in the main area of XM. He then threatened to take me outside and beat me like a little bitch. I'm like, oh, that's great, Ron. When you lose the word fight, it's violence. That's a great sign of a comic. And uh, he left, and then he told Dave that we weren't allowed to air it. Now, to me, what do I care? I've got an episode in the can with Mark Forward, a far better interview in terms of recognition in this country. Uh, But Ron's interview was actually pretty good. But he hung himself in a lot of the statements. I didn't lie. It's the other thing that Ron likes to do. He likes to throw around the words lies and slander. And when it came down to it, I said, Ron, produce the lies and slander I said in that interview or shut up. Right. And he couldn't. And then all these people were like, Ron, I want to hear this interview. He wouldn't allow me to put it out there. So I said, fine. I never aired it. Didn't put it out there. Then he said, fine. Put it out on the Internet. So I put it on the Internet. And we had many downloads of that episode. It never aired on XM. And I got countless emails from people saying they couldn't believe what he was saying on Facebook versus how the actual episode aired. It's not even a bad episode. It's a pretty good representation of him. Mm -hmm. But... Here's what happens. Ron doesn't like to be pushed or prodded or not acted like, oh, my God, the god Ron Vaudry's in this room. I could give a flying fuck about him. I mean, I, that's my reputation. I don't care. But what does it really matter to me? But, you know, Ron's got his repped up hold. And at the end of the day, it's been a year and a half. I don't even care about it anymore. The show is over. Ron's doing his thing. I'm doing mine. But you know what? Ron doesn't like to forget because that's the only thing he has left to hold on to. And, you know, good luck to him. Let him do his comedy. He's got his fans. I've got my fans. And at the end of the day, uh, it does, it's, it's just two comics beating their chest like fucking dumb monkeys, really. Right. Well, there, well, thanks, man. Thanks for clearing that up. I just thought it would be uh, good to get your side of things. Cause, and that really does clear, clear it up because I didn't, I didn't quite get the, co- the controversy that I guess, and as you say, it's not really that controversial because when you listen to the interview it's pretty just like straightforward and and just a conversation between two guys it's even not even that bad ron ron didn't like the fact and people some people have said to me what did you expect him to do ron didn't like the fact really that i called him bitter that was one of his stumbling blocks because my point of view is i don't think anyone should control comedy if they're bitter Right. I just don't. I don't think it's a good place to come from. And I admit in the interview that I'm bitter. That's why I don't want to run amateur nights. That's why I don't want to have any control over anyone's career, because I'm a bitter dude. Sometimes decisions based on bitterness are only should affect you and you alone. That's right. all the place I was coming from. But he wouldn't admit it. And to 85% of the comics in this country, they all were like, what? Ron doesn't know he's bitter? He could have saved it by saying, look, I know my rep. Or it looks like I'm bitter. But actually, that's kind of an onstage thing. I'm not really that bitter. He could have saved it, but he didn't want to. And And my attitude is, is you're not going to be self-aware or honest. Because if you listen to that interview, at that point, I kind of give up. I kind of like, I just kind of throw my hands up. like, okay, let's just fill this time. And then he starts accusing comics of stealing from him. And whether it's true or not, I didn't care at that point. Right. You know, it's, I'm a pretty straight shooter. You know, I try to be. I have my own agenda, sure. Was my agenda to, you know, screw over Ron Vaudry? No. Ron always takes lemonade and makes it piss every time. Right. And I'm not the first comic to say that. And now he's going to say, based on this interview, fucking Darren Fraud, blah, 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 And he's going to threaten me again. Whatever. I've been threatened before. Whatever, Ron. You know, all I say is anyone that has to resort to violence in comedy ain't a comic in my book. Right. He also said in the interview that 
he was accused of ruining some people's careers. Did you ever say that? And do you think that he did, in fact, ruin some people's careers? I personally, now, maybe I haven't listened to the interview in a long time. I do not remember saying he ruined people's careers. Um, that's not what I remember. Do I remember that he made it hard for people? Yes, he did. And I didn't like it. Uh, I didn't like it back in the time and the, and the day, and I didn't respect what he had to say because I didn't think it came from a good place. Some people liked it. Some people didn't. He said that in your interview with him. Mm-hmm. But I don't remember accusing him of ruining anyone's career because the reality is Ron Votri couldn't ruin anyone's career just like I couldn't. One comic can't ruin anyone's career. Right. Can they make it hard in the start? Absolutely. Yeah, but, especially you know, in the start. time is a great equalizer. Right. And that's the reality of it. And those people that didn't like Ron may have made friends with him again. And those people who didn't like me may have made friends with me now. Time is the greatest equalizer. He didn't ruin anyone's career. I did not agree with the way he ran Amateur Night, but that's an opinion. But unless you have Ron's opinion, no one else is allowed to have that opinion. Like I said, I thought, to be honest, I was pretty respectful towards him, considering in that interview. Mm-hmm. But, you know, uh, that's based on opinion, and he has a different one. So be it. Is there a link somewhere to that interview? Well, that's up to Ron. Oh, to if we can put it up? You know, Ron says to me, uh, uh, you know, uh, he threatens to sue me every time I say anything about it online. Okay. A comic that threatens to sue another comic. Right. I hope you're laughing about that. I am laughing about that. I hope you are. And I hope so are your listeners. Right. Because of all the lies and slander, if you heard that interview, you'd be laughing your fucking head off how there's no lies and slander. All right, I'll see. I stand beside everything I say, and there's no lies and slander. All right, I'll see if he lets us post it. But uh, otherwise, thank you for clearing that up, man. I really appreciate it. And you know what? At the end of the day, like I said, you know, Ron's going to be all angry. Ron, Ron's, Ron's a great comic. Uh, I just don't like him as a human being. Right. And I always try to take the two separately, you know, based on, you know, the, the person and then their act. You know, Ron's, uh, Ron's a, 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 you know, a veteran comedian that... Young comics can learn from on stage, off stage, not so much. Got it. And that goes both ways. Some comics you you can't stand their act, but you like them off stage. So it absolutely, it's just part of it. You know, I have I have friends that are hacks, and they're they're never going to ask me what I think of their act because they don't do their act for me. Right. And sometimes comics forget that that you know what, what you know we're not doing. You know, when I started out as Happy Clappy, you know, a number of veteran comics came up to me and told me they hate my act, but they like me. Right. I'm like, I'd rather side on that that side right now. I'm just a young comic. I'm just trying to get people to laugh at me. That's it. Mm-hmm. Maybe 20 years in, I'll, I don't care if you like me as a person like I am now, just what you think of my act. And even then, I don't. They're comics. Right. But, you know, um, it, it's a long, long, hard road for all of us. And I think that if Ron took a little less time in the vinegar category and a little more time in the, uh, you know, uh, nice category, he'd probably go a long way. Cool. Well, thanks a lot for clearing that up, buddy. Appreciate your time. All right, man. Talk to you soon. All right. Cheers. Bye. Bye. And we are back with Ron Vaudry. Yeah, let's get into this controversy thing, shall we? And he's a creep. Um, By some opinions. <laughs> he's a creep, he says. Okay, I want to clear, clear this up or at least talk about it because, uh, like I mentioned before the break, 
it's hard sometimes to say things online and it comes off uh, way differently. Um, it's also so easy to take things online and misinterpret them and misrepresent them so fucking easily too. Okay, so let's so. get into it. So recently, you were involved in a bit of a, controver- a bit of controversy with um, a comic from Montreal in regards to the comedy works closing. Yeah. So explain well, a little bit to the listeners what what I'm referring to. Okay, uh, the comedy uh, comedy works in Montreal and established club for over twenty years closed uh, this year because of a lack of attendance and lack of interest and lack of a lot of things. But three years ago, three years ago, I predicted it was going to close, which is the cool thing, because I, w- I was trapped in Montreal for four months. I was waiting for a visa. They changed the visa laws and procedures, so I was sort of stuck in a bureaucratic limbo for four months in Montreal. So I'll make the best of it. We'll go up to the club, ask to do some guest sets, do some time. After all, I'm a world-traveling, international headlining comic. And it's my home club that I played for 20 years. And after the first month, I realized I'm not getting any slots. They don't let people walk in and do a guest set anymore because the mm-hmm. shows are programmed. And, you know, I've been away for 10 years. Who gives a shit? Who knows me? Who gives a fuck? So I'd sign up on Monday like any other comic. And I wasn't getting any slots. And I was talking to a friend in uh, New York. And I will mention his name. I didn't mention it on the on the internet uh, on the web, uh, on Facebook, the, in the uh, in the verbal brawl that went on there. Uh, but Daryl Lennox, you know, he's, what the fuck, man? They're not giving you slots? Why wouldn't they? I went, I don't know. Iman's in charge of uh, booking the local acts now that she does the MCs and the, uh, and the local opening acts. And uh, she doesn't know who I am, nor does she care. Well, that's fucking ridiculous. Yeah, I agree with you. Says, She's a friend of mine. I'll give her a call. So he calls her and says, why aren't you booking voter? You think I should? He said, yeah, you kidding? You should be booking him all the time. He's there. You should use him as much as possible. But he said, no, okay, then. So give him a hosting slot this week. You know, he calls me back after that conversation. When I talk to her, you, you're going to get something now. I said, why do I have to go to a fucking New York comic to play my hometown, mm-hmm. to play my home room? It's ridiculous. Next day I'm called. Uh, she gives me the weekend hosting. So it's pretty clear to me what happened there. Mm-hmm. So uh, afterwards, I went to Jimbo, and I went, this is fucking ridiculous. Got the inmates running the asylum here. Oh, Ron, I don't bother about that anymore. I just booked the headliners, and she takes care of the local stuff for me, MCs and opening acts. And I went, well, you've gone mad. You're going to kill your club that way. She's going to book just her little circle of friends, and only their little circle of fans are going to come to the club, and it's going to dilute the whole process, and you're going to end up closing your doors. And he got very upset with me, and I went, look, Jimbo, I'm telling you this because I'm your friend. You're killing your fucking club with this. This is the stupidest way to fucking book your club. And, of course, he got upset because that's direct criticism. But I'm being honest with him. You know, I've known the man for 20 years. He doesn't want to book me anymore after that. Fine, you know. It's a very small pond in the, in the world I live in, comedically speaking. And then three years later, the club closes. So I posted on my Facebook page. You know, uh, you know the biggest thing was uh, Jimbo's disinterest in the club. He lost interest in the club. That was a major factor in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, marketing is different. Advertising is tough in Montreal. But a contributing factor was her self-indulgent little circle of back-slapping merrymakers that she booked constantly, I thought, was part of the problem. And did you mention her name? This is Iman we're talking about? Yeah. Yeah, I think I think I mentioned her name in my original post. Right. And, you know, people like a uh, local comedian, uh, you know, doorman, hostess for the uh, Comedy Works, 
Levac goes, yeah, man, I know what you're talking about. It was like that for a long time, and I was lose. I haven't enjoyed playing here in a long time because of that kind of booking practice. I hardly ever got on, and it was just her friends, and he went on to agree with me, and a couple of other people came in on my Facebook page and went, yeah, I think you made a good point, though I think the biggest thing was Jimbo's disinterest in it, his lack of interest in it. And, yeah, all contributing factors, but not to minimalize the contributing factor that she she made with her self-intelligent bookings. And that's just my opinion, and it was on my page. And then a little while later, uh, Mike Patterson, who I have a great deal of respect for, he's a crazy motherfucker, I love him, love watching him. Mm-hmm. And uh, he posted on uh, his page a letter that Iman wrote to Gazette about how she just admired comedy so much and wanted to do it so much and got herself a job there, which was really tough because nobody ever leaves that job. It's such a wonderful place. And she just painted this picture of like Nirvana. And eventually I got on and I I did a comedy now and now I'm a full-time comedian and a professional. And, blah, blah, blah. and I just wrote, what a load of shit underneath the comment. And then Steve Levac jumps in and goes, oh, Ron, you don't have to be so dark and negative. If I wanted to be negative, I'd point out the fact that she's partly responsible for this nonsense because of her self-indulgent booking and blah, 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 blah. And then the floodgates open. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm not going to speak from a position of ignorance, but I watched her comedy now just to uh, know exactly what the fuck I'm talking about. I watched it. Actually, I watched her comedy now after that incident in Montreal where she wasn't booking me. Well, who the fuck does she think she is? Let's check it out. And I wasn't impressed. I described it as ethnic vagina comedy. And that's no worse than saying they do dick jokes. It's no worse than they say they do ethnic jokes. They're ethnic comics. They're dick joke comics. Common terminology. So to put them together in ethnic vagina comedy, it's just the female version of the dick joke ethnic comic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nothing too scandalous about that. Yeah, provocative, sure. And then all of her friends on that little circle start jumping in. Well, who the fuck are you? I've never heard of you before. And you're nobody. I saw you once and you were terrible. And I saw you another time and I walked into the green room and you were aloof and too big to talk to us little guys. And it's like all this negative fucking stuff flooring out about it. And it's like, let's get back to the point here. And she comes in. Oh, you're just an old and bitter comic, blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. You're a liar. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I had nothing to do with that. Jimbo made those decisions. He often used me. I'm the victim here because Jimbo would say it was Iman that didn't want you. No, no, you're a liar. Do I have to mention the comic's name from New York that spoke to you, made you give me that slot? You know, you can lie to your friends, but you're not going to lie to me. I know what happened. And it just went on like that with every all of her friends attacking me and hack, blah, blah, blah. And she, she well, one of the comments she made uh, was, you're just an old, bitter comic who never made it. And like I said before, you know, doing this for 36 years is making. What's your interpretation? You've got to be a rich man to be a successful comic. Mm-hmm. You know, and I also mentioned that, uh, you know, I'm not embittered. You know, if I went to the doctors after smoking for 40 years and he told me I had cancer, I wouldn't call the doctor bitter. You know, I'm the cause of that. And she wrote back, well, you'll be happy to know I don't have cancer. And I didn't say you did have cancer. I said you were the cancer that ate away at that system. You know, you're part of the cause. And, oh, he says I have can- He says I'm a cancer. Yeah, and then uh, Mike, Mike Patterson comes in at some point in this uh, melee of all of her friends attacking and said, hey, man, what happened? This is my happy little post. I'm having a great time at the Just for Laughs, and it's turned into this on my page. So Jessica, uh, what's her last name? Solomon. Solomon, who I respect. I think she's a funny girl, and I like her, you know. Mm-hmm. But she starts the argument again on her page, removes it from, from uh, Patterson's page, but she quotes me as saying that she's an ethnic vagina. 
and takes the comedy word out. Complete misquote, mis- complete misdirection. So now, oh, he, 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 he's a racist, a bigot, and a sexist, and a misogynist, and that melee starts going on. Not to mention they had great fun in my inability to spell Y-O-U, apostrophe R-E, mm. <laughs> which I never do right. Fuck it. Right. The spell check doesn't pick that one up. And in, a, in, a, in an internet comment thread, really, who gives a fuck about spelling? Oh, but much, much to do about my spelling. You know, just anything they can grab onto attack. You know, we've never seen you before. Who the fuck are you? We're her fan. She's gray. Then Steve Levesque weighs back in going, you know, it's like, yeah, well, I enjoy watching both of you. You know, Ron's like trooper. He's old school and has been. And you're like Lady Gaga. And I thought, what the fuck are you going on about Levesque? You were on my side, on my page. So I just cut and paste his comments for the early page back onto their page. And fuck you, Levesque. You two-faced little weasel kissing her ass. She's no fucking Lady Gaga. Believe me, I saw her set. But the primary thing was they took the word comedy out of it and made it a very personal thing on their reprint. And I mentioned clearly that it's like you can't misquote me and then uh, run amok on it and get all your friends to believe that I'm this horrible bigot sexist. Mm-hmm. I was talking about her comedy. I, oh, it had nothing to do but comedy. It was personal. I went, no, it wasn't. I said she was partially responsible for the closing of that comedy club. I said that her ethnic vagina comedy doesn't justify her arrogance here. You know, comedy was written all over it. You took the words comedy out for your argument. And that's essentially what it was. And then I called them all cunts and we left, you know. Right. And that was that. Yeah. It's like 70 losers in Montreal are going to come to my show. Thank you. Well, I guess. Wow, you committed comedy suicide. I've never seen anybody crash their career so quickly. Does that mean I'm never going to work the comedy works? Fuck you. I've got a career. Where are you, where are you fucking people going? I guess the question out of all this is why, why even bother to begin with? Why post that? I mean, because you're, like you said, many. T- uh, you're a veteran of the game, thirty six years. Because who, who, you know what? I love that club. Right. I love that little intimate club upstairs in Montreal. I love that it only sat one hundred and twenty people. It was a great. Club. I love visiting. It was a great place to play while I was in Montreal. Good audiences used to come to that club, and I was. Uh, you know, upset the club closed, you know, upset Jimbo lost his interest and upset that these people with their self-indulgence and their little party-making ways helped close that club that I like so much. So, yeah, I had an opinion on it. It's my hometown. It's my home club. You know, I made a comment. Provocative, sure, but accurate, absolutely. And I'll stand by it and I can prove everything I said. I guess one step further then, why even engage with them when they're calling you a hack and a ha- like they, they never know who gives a fuck what, uh, what these yeah, people I, say? I'm a, I'm a bit of a dick that way. I like to see them get all riled up. So, <laughs> right. Listen, you stunned twat. Ah, oh, you're being a sexist calling me a twat. No, twat just means stupid where I come from. I'm decompressing from Britain. I'm still using some of their words. Right. And cunt's not a sexual word either. And I just I just called the names back. You know, I did notice in the thread, yeah, when you said cunt. I mean, because coming from the UK, cunt is anybody. It's not yeah, it's just anything. female oriented. Or, and so they did take that personally. Of course. But, uh, okay, well, there you go. It was all about being sensitive and attacking the person who's attacking their favorite little comic in Canada. You know, fuck you and fuck your minion, you know. It's like... You're part of the problem in this industry. These mm-hmm. little fucking egos that think they're so great. Well, move down to New York. Let's see where you go. You know, maybe ethnic vagina comedy is the new future of comedy. I don't know. I don't give a shit. It didn't impress me. Well, there you go. I wanted to get some clarification. You you gave it. Uh, so thanks a lot. Daryl Lennox. You want to live your lie? Call Daryl and call him a liar, too. 
Lucas. He's well, well respected like, if I'm not. What, did, were they denying that? Um, oh, she was denying that she had anything to do with giving me the slot or not giving me the slot. It was oh, out right. of her control. It was Jimbo that made No, you're a liar. Mm. Daryl Lennox didn't call Jimbo. You didn't call Jimbo. Daryl Lennox called you. You agreed to give me the weekend slot, told Daryl Lennox that, and then the next day I had the weekend slot. Am I supposed to think that Jimbo was somewhere in between that triangle? No, he wasn't. So don't hide behind and say, oh, you're so innocent, I'm just attacking you for no reason. You're a fucking liar. Mm. Add that to your resume. And if that's provocative, too bad. It's true. You lied to your friends and motivated your friends on a hate cycle, and then I get accused of being hateful, and I just simply said, no, I don't hate you. I don't like you. I'm allowed not to like somebody. It's okay not to like somebody. Mm -hmm. This PC correctness that you're not allowed to say what you feel and say what you mean and tell people, no, I don't like you. Don't hang out with me. I don't want to be around you. I don't like you. Doesn't mean I hate you. Doesn't mean I wish you harm. Doesn't mean I wish you cancer. Keep it in context. People can distort anything you say, and they had a field day of distortion. So, anybody wants to go back and read that tread, I'll go over it line by line with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that got heated. That. that was a long fucking thread, like hundreds and hundreds of comments. Because um, she had about seven. I counted them up at one point. I went, 70 losers won't be at my show at the at the <laughs> the comedy nest this week." Excellent. Right. You know, it's just her fan page. You know, everybody, nobody on my connection, none of the people I'm connected with on Facebook are watching that argument. Mm-hmm. One person got, got a hold of it because of a cross-reference that she knew somebody. And she jumped in and went, no, you're wrong about Ron. Ron's not like that. Ron's not a sexist. He's not a, he's not a hater. He's not a bigot. He just speaks his mind. And you didn't like what he spoke in his mind, and you've turned it into all these things. And then Jessica got into a conversation with her, my friend of mine. And I went, look, Jessica, I'll be happy to talk to you on, on a private message thing if you want to keep this off the page. And I went back to Jessica. I went, look, I respect you. I like you. You know, I just think you're misinformed and you're fighting the wrong battle. I know she's your friend, but you can't take the word out comedy and say that I called her an ethnic vagina because I didn't call her an ethnic vagina. I called her an ethnic vagina comic, comedy. Mm-hmm. I described her act, which is not personal. And you made it into a very personal thing, and that's why all her friends are gathering to her defense. Right. Fuck them. I sit in my castle and I'm, I'm secure with my knowledge that uh, I'm right and they're wrong and I don't give a shit. Well, there you go. You heard it. You heard it here, everybody. The clarification of that. Uh, if anyone listening was part of that, um, thanks you, for. You know, you just opened up a fireball for yourself on this, right? <laughs> right. No, no, I was there. I read it. He was an asshole. <laughs> uh, thanks for doing the podcast. Anything you want to plug? Uh no, no. Just uh, hello, Canada. Welcome. I'm glad to be back. Uh, welcome you to all my shows. Let's find out who you are. I've been away for ten years. You'll be uh, seeing a lot more Ron Vogier around. Thanks for doing the podcast, brother. I'll see you. Yeah, around. yeah. Oh, glad to help. Thanks. Well, there she is, episode 13, and a controversial one at that. In the books, that's the third installment of the West Coast Tapes. Thanks to my guest, Ron Vaudry, and thanks to Darren Frost for, for the call-in. And thanks to you, always. Thank you. Appreciate it. Appreciate the downloads. Thanks to my producer, Adam Fox, and my sound engineer, Miles Lacroix. Be sure to check out Facebook.com slash JD Comedy Hour and follow on Instagram and Twitter at JD Comedy Hour. What else? Oh, come to Say What next Wednesday, November 5th. We've got an amazing show. So if you find yourself in Toronto, do yourself a favor. Come to 67 Front Street East for one of the best stand-up shows the city has to offer. It's a great time. And, of course, Garage Baby. Gracing the stage, it's a great time. Nine o'clock, 
come check that out. And that's it, I believe. I hope I'm not forgetting anything. Can't think on the spot. Just thank you. Oh, email the show, pod, P-O-D, at jdcomedyhour.com. I want to hear from you. Thank you so much, always, and watch your head. shit i can hear shit in my ears it's weird holy fuck look at that yeah i usually have the big studio yeah. headphones but i figured it'd be easier to it's all the same thing i can monitor my voice on this it's really easy <laughs> so give me a two second warning before you start checking it check it check it how are your levels is that too loud in your ears uh or? no it's not too loud in my ears actually i could use a little more in my ears actually yeah How's that? Yeah, yeah. I, hey, hey, I, hey. I, I had unrestricted Walkmans in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> so. Okay. Um, just give me, uh, just say something, a little check, sound check. Check, sound check, 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 sound check, check. Is uh, Are your levels up? Levels are, your levels are good. good? Mm-hmm. Do just I have to sit this close or is this too far away from over here? That's too far away. That's too far away. Well, so then if I'll, you want I'll to put the, the, you can even lean on the table if you want. <laughs> Okay, Is that sure. better? Sure, sure, sure. Give whatever. me one sec. Let me. Uh... I can even bring it closer to the edge of the table. There you go. There you go. How about that? I can move. It's mobile. mobile. You can bring it to the edge. You can bring your chair closer. Yeah. Oh, sorry, you can't do any. <laughs> um, give me some of your credits uh, off the top. Some of my credits. Yeah, because I give you some a little bit of a bio. Uh, you mean TV credits? And uh, yeah. Shit like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, shit, where we go? Uh, six times on uh, open mic. Eight times on Club 54.